This is The Space Shot, episode 340 for April 19th, 2018. Long Duration Human Space Flight, part 3. I'm John Molnix. Later this morning, I will be speaking at the Cosmosphere, presenting my Storytelling in the Space Age talk. I'll be sharing that talk with you over the next couple episodes, so make sure you tune in. We've already heard the first two parts of the latest Cosmosphere podcast, so let's finish out the conversation today. I've got another quick question here. How is blood pressure impacted by the lack of gravity? So uh, blood pressure actually going into microgravity, there are not huge effects of of, uh, overall blood pressure when you go into microgravity. The bigger issue is when you come back. So when you come after you've adapted to microgravity, um, you know, your body gets used to those fluid shifts that Megan was talking about earlier. And um, you actually start to lose your blood pressure regulation capabilities. So what, what happens is when you come back into, into Earth's gravity, or if we're talking about an exploration mission where you go into Martian gravity, if you stand up, then your legs are no longer used to kind of fighting that, that um, blood pooling down in your, in your legs anymore because it just kind of floated up towards your chest and your head. So what happens when you enter gravity is all that blood goes back into your lower body. You're generally a little bit, um, you have a little bit less fluid in your system to begin with. Uh, and then you get a, a condition that we call hypostatic or, uh, orthostatic hypotension, where uh, you essentially faint because your blood pressure cannot be maintained. Your body basically doesn't have enough blood to pump up to your head and down you go. So uh, we have a lot of uh, countermeasures for that right now. Uh, we have some uh, compression stockings uh, that are used, uh, some uh, contaver suits, uh, things that basically squeeze your lower body to keep that blood pooling there. Um, they also fluid load before they come home. Uh, they, they drink some uh, slightly salty water to actually have more fluid in their system right before they come home. So that's uh, you know, generally not, not a huge effect. Uh, there obviously are some effects that are somewhat variable for different crew members, actually. Um, when they go up, but it's, it's the more important thing that we're worried about is when they come back down. We've talked a lot about the effects of longer duration spaceflight, but one of the other things that the Cosmosphere would like to know too is how how are diseases studied in space? Um, whether it's like cancer or something like diabetes, how how are those studied differently in space versus here on the ground? Well, I, there are probably some, you know, some similarities. Uh, I mean, it is the, the ISS is a national laboratory. Um, there, as we talked about before, there's a lot of infrastructure that we have. There's a glove box uh, up there for anything that needs to be kept very clean or sterile. Uh, we have uh, cell culture capability. We have uh, rodent capability. So, you know, we've done all some of the very similar type of experiments that you would do on Earth um, have been done in flight, of course, the logistics of, of flying rats or mice uh, or you know cell cultures, plants, all these sorts of things. Uh, we have huge teams of engineers that help put together the environments to get things you know on the vehicles to get them launched and delivered to ISS, and then they have to be maintained on ISS. And of course, if there are any sample returns, that all has to be worked out. Um, <clears throat> so it's much much more difficult, but a lot of the same types of um, experimental techniques apply, they just have to be uh, translatable to to the zero-G environment, and you have to be able to um, either have the experiments be completely autonomous, in other words, it's something that it just, it does themselves, or it can be automated through a machine, or a crew member has to be trained to do your experiment for you. 
and they're quite good at doing that, and um, they enjoy doing the variety of experiments that uh, that are flown in these uh, different types of um, uh, you know life science experiments, such as you know cancer and yeah. other diseases. Right. Yeah. So just to add on to that, uh, we have really cool capabilities on ISS. We can actually look at DNA right now. Um, we have the ability to collect blood and do some analysis on ISS or collect it and save it and bring it down so that it can be analyzed here on the ground. So those were huge, massive technological advances that will really promote understanding diseases in the future. Well, and if memory serves, didn't a new centrifuge fly up with the latest uh, CRS mission? I believe so, yeah. I think I might have read that. Okay. So is that, you know, it, obviously the capabilities of the station are being constantly upgraded. Is there anything that all of you are looking forward to for, you know, a future capability on the station? <laughs> so, actually, I would say. <laughs> I know that's really no, broad. <laughs> yes, is the answer. Um, no, there are a lot of capabilities that we're looking at um, to put onto the station to actually answer questions about longer duration space flight. But Kind of the paradox right now is that what we're trying to do is limit the hardware and limit the equipment that we're putting on exploration vehicles simply because we don't have the mass and we don't have the size. So a lot of the technology is trying to figure out what do we absolutely need to have on these exploration missions. And for those things that we absolutely need to have, how do we make them smaller? How do we make them run more efficiently? So to Less highlight power. some of the things that Doug, you know, Doug talked about is, you know, we don't want to use the ground for a lot of that. So how do we get them to work without ground communication, without sending data down to the ground with less power? So um, it's a little bit of a paradoxical environment that we're working in right now. We're almost in some ways we're asked to be, we're, we're actually going backwards in capability in a lot of ways. We're going back to a vehicle that is it's more similar to the Apollo era than it is to, you know, anything else that we've done so far. So, you know, we're kind of using our experience on ISS to, to miniaturize and, and, you know, make things more efficient. But in, in a lot of ways, it's um, we're going to have to take a step backwards in, in, in research capabilities in order to actually get the mission completed. Right. And so I think a perfect example of that is, you know, what we talked about before was with our exercise hardware is we're going from three things that we know we really, really like, and then it's up to our subject matter experts to figure out what part of exercise is really, really important that we carry on to these exploration missions and that nature is definitely part of these small exercise devices. How does how does, you know, simplifying these systems for those, you know, exploration missions, how does that play in then to the human in the loop testing that we do here on the ground? Right. So that's actually a really important question. And those are things that we try to answer every day from an EVA perspective and from an exercise perspective. Um, so one of the things that we look at for EVA is we don't want we don't want a lot of overhead to get out the door. We don't want them to have to put on a lot of sensors or um, do a really long um, pre-brief protocol or anything like that. Um, and so that's where on the ground we try to create space-like environments as much as possible, whether that's using thermal chambers where we can change the pressure and the CO2 and the O2 conditions to replicate those things and figure out what exactly do we need to do from the crew member. Um, so those are, it's a huge challenge trying to bring space down to earth, but it's something that we have to do in order to do human in the loop testing. 
one of the other things that I've kind of been curious about just because I have to wear glasses, unfortunately, at, at times it's kind of a pain in the butt. But it sounds like when astronauts are up in space that that, you know, the fluid shifts, how the pressure on, you know, the ocular nerve is my, my understanding that changes. How do we how do we mitigate against those changes for longer duration missions? So we really right now, we really don't understand very well at all what's happening um, with the You know, it's spaceflight associated neuroocular syndrome is what we call it. SANS for short. Um, right now, what we do is since we know that this happens in, in almost all crew to a certain extent is that we actually fly uh, space anticipation glasses. We call them uh, the optometrist will <laughs> actually project what they expect to be, um, you know, their prescription after they have, what what happens is you actually have a little bit of globe flattening, your eyeball uh, actually flattens. And uh, so your light path shortens a little bit and we get what we call a hyper optic shift. In other words, you get a little bit more farsighted than, than you were before. Um, some of our crews say, oh, this is great. You know, I can see the earth better than I ever could before, but then they're wearing reading glasses. So um, they're, Sometimes we miss with the space anticipation glasses and they'll have to fly some additional um, lenses up for them uh, on a resupply ship. But obviously during an exploration mission, we're not going to be able to do that. We need to get it right from the beginning or they need to have a way to either stop this from happening to, to, to uh, begin with. Or, you know, we need a way to make sure that they, they don't have uh, an issue, um, you know, physiologically. So you know there 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 are some some um, damaging some damage pathways that are occurring uh, at the back of the eye that we don't fully understand. Um, most of these we think are related to that headward fluid shift. Some of the early um, hypotheses were that <clears throat> it was a, a very high elevation in intracranial pressure. Some of our current data says that that's probably not the case. There may be, uh, you know, a mildly, a very consistently and mildly elevated intracranial pressure. But the fact that that blood is up there congesting your head and your neck um, is a um, likely a, a, a contributing factor. Uh, so most of the countermeasures that we're actually looking at and testing right now are related to mitigating that fluid shift and, and getting that venous congestion out of the head and neck. Um, three big ones, three big mechanical countermeasures that we're looking at. One is the lower body negative pressure. Uh, they're known as the, um, the, the Chibis suit is what we um, have tested a little bit on ISS. It's a Russian device. Uh, looks like the wrong trousers from Wallace and Gromit. If you've <laughs> ever seen that. Um, it literally just creates a negative pressure around the entire lower body and pulls that blood back down to the lower body and you know, out, of the, out of the head. Um, the other one are, are, uh, that we use are uh, bracelet thigh cuffs or venous constricting thigh cuffs. It's, I like to call it a poor man's LBNP or lower body negative pressure. It basically just uh, prevents some of the venous blood from uh, returning out of the legs. So it goes down into the legs and then it's just a cuff that prevents it from coming back. And then we're actually just um, completing a ground study right now looking at um, an impedance threshold device, which is essentially like uh, breathing in through some resistance. That just creates a vacuum in your chest, which draws blood back towards your chest. So in space, that would that would pull it, you know, down out of your head and neck. Um, and all of these work uh, quite well to varying degrees. Um, and uh, you know, we're we're looking at these in uh, as, as ways to potentially mitigate the uh, the effects of this uh, Sans eye problem that we have. 
Hmm. Well, and that's that, that's kind of an interesting way of of mitigating those factors. I I think I'd read somewhere that can't the negative uh, pressure, like the lower body suits, can't those pose a little bit of a risk? They do. I mean, there's a risk with just like any medication, there are always going to be some side effects with it. Um, And, you know, we talked a little bit before about the orthostatic hypotension. Uh, That can happen as well. If you put somebody uh, in, you know, that's in microgravity, they're already a little bit low on fluid. You put them in um, too strong of a lower body negative pressure situation. All of that blood's going to go down to their lower body. It comes out of their head. You take too much blood out of the head and basically you faint. Um, so yes, there are, there are physiological stresses and trade-offs that come with, uh, with any of these devices. Um, and you know, the venous constricted thigh cuffs, um, they, they, they work well for a short period of time, but you know, you also have to worry about clotting factors. If you strap them on too tightly and you, and you create too much, um, you know, stoppage of the blood flow to where it's not flowing, you can get clots that form. And obviously that's not good either. So yeah, we, we are, uh, need to be very careful with the trade-offs with any kind of mitigation that we potentially use uh, and make sure that we're not doing more harm than good and, and balance those, um, those effects. I would just say, um, I guess the big picture going forward is that um, as we go towards exploration, you know, we have to approach it as a system-wide um, pro- or system-wide question that we're trying to answer. And so there's not going to be any one countermeasure that fixes everything. And so um, as we go towards exploration, it's really giving us an opportunity to work with multiple different groups, whether it's looking at behavioral health, bone, nutrition, um, cardiovascular health, um, bringing all those groups together is a really good opportunity and, and necessity to go forward and learn everything that we need to, that we need to learn in order to uh, promote exploration to Mars and moon. And, and to take that even one step further, it's, you know, not only we really do need to consider, and we've learned, that's one of the things that we've learned as we've gone forward, is that all of these systems are very interrelated. And, you know, we can't continue to think of one, you know, the effects on one system don't affect the, you know, another system. So we need to consider um, the human body as a whole and uh, look at the interaction between all these systems. But it's also an interaction with the human system with the vehicle. Um, so there, there's a lot of, you know, in the new vehicle design, um, and even in the operations concepts as we, as we move forward, these vehicles are so small that, um, you know, we've touched on this a little bit before, there are always trade-offs. I mean, they're not going to let us have the equipment that we would like to have. Um, we're, we're not going to be able to have the capabilities that we'd like to have. So there are these trade-offs between, you know, are we really increasing, uh, are we decreasing our, our medical risk or our human system risk by loading on more engineering or does that just increase our engineering risk? Because the reality of the situation is, in you know, in an exploration situation, the the majority of the overall mission risk is actually on the engineering side. So um, it it does need to be put in context of the entire mission um, and the vehicle. So the, you know, they're all they're all things that need to be considered. Um, you know, that NASA is taking a look at from, from multiple angles to to actually make a mission to you know going back to the moon or or going to Mars even possible. And, and staying there, you know, and staying for longer periods than just, you know, a quick eight or 24 or multi-day, multi-day stay on the moon. It's going to be longer duration out there. So being able to make everything work together just sounds like it's an awesome challenge. And I'm sure all of you love being able to work on those problems every day. 
Absolutely. <laughs> well, Chelsea, Megan, Doug, I want to just thank all of you for sitting down and talking with us today on this Friday the 13th. Thank you, all of you, for working through these uh, technical issues we've had, which is kind of funny because today I've been finishing up another episode of mine on Apollo 13. So yay that we get our own little technical glitches here today. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you. Tomorrow, storytelling in the space age. I hope all of you have a fantastic rest of your day. I appreciate each and every one of you that listen to the podcast every day. I'd be incredibly grateful if you could share the podcast with your friends and family. Tag one of them and let them know about your favorite episode. I'd also really appreciate it if you could venture into the Apple Podcasts app or your podcast app of choice and leave a review for The Space Shot. A steady stream of reviews helps ensure the Space Shot is more visible in the Apple Podcasts app. As always, the show notes have more information on today's episode. You can hit me up on Instagram and Twitter. Find me at John Molnix. I'm always up to chat. You can also connect with me on Facebook. Just search the Space Shot or check out the links in the show notes and you'll find me. I'm John Molnix and I'll catch you on the flip side.